with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. We'll hit that. We'll, we'll get our way there in just a minute. This morning, we're going to do our uh, second part of a series we're on called Glory, The Glory of Marriage. I want to encourage you, if you didn't have the chance to, to be here last week or listen to the message, listen to that one. This, uh, this series will be a package that builds on one another. Each, each message will. So listen to that online. You can go to our website or you can go to iTunes and listen to our podcast. And uh, these will build together. They'll, they'll, have, they'll be connected. And so last week is important to get that picture of marriage, that lens, sort of under your belt as we're progressing through the next uh, weeks. Today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, preach probably the most practical message out of the series. Uh, I'm just going to give seven keys or seven, uh, yeah, just seven keys that are prerequisites for marriage. And um, these are not, um, you know, completely like the exhaustive list of requirements you should have in place before you get married. They're more like my opinion, um, though they're founded in Scripture. And you think, well, brother, you don't want to be preaching your opinion. Well, I, I, I agree. I don't want to preach my opinion. I don't even want to stand before the Lord and have given any opinions. But as, I'm, as, I'm, uh, have I, as I've spent years talking to married couples and, and thinking about marriage, studying marriage, uh, I thought, what's the, what's the you know, nugget that I can get across to people? What's the, you know, the core thoughts I can get across to people as re- uh, requisites for marriage? And so I'm going to give uh, seven. I know there's a much broader list. My encouragement to you is, if you're married, twofold, because you might go, well, I don't need to know the requirements of marriage. I'm, marriage, I'm already married. <laughs> well, what you can do, though, is there's certain things here that might be helpful if you actually didn't have those in place before you got married. Go back and kind of work on those things a little bit and kind of let your heart connect to those truths. The other thing you can do is if you're already married is take this list and tweak it, expand on it, cut a few off, add a few on, and then pass that on to your children. And I think one of our, our, our big, uh, well, one of our big oversights as it relates to parenting is that we don't give more input to our children as it relates to relationships. Somehow we've kind of allowed relationships to be a private matter up to an individual, and we even allow 13 and 14-year-olds just to make their own decisions on who they want to hook up with. And I just want to encourage you, that's a bad idea. <laughs> Parents, you need to parent your children all the way up into their marriages and all the way through their marriages. Now, it, you don't parent them when they're 18 the same way you did when they're 8. Amen. Some parents need to learn that. And, and certainly not when they get married. They leave and cleave. You know, they leave the home. Some parents need to learn that, hey, when they get married to someone else, that's the preeminent, the, the, the key human relationship they have now. And you're not supposed to be all up in those cookies. But there is a parenting reality that uh, needs to, I think, uh, take on a whole different, uh, whole different view or a whole different en- engagement, I would say, with children, and especially in the area of relationships. And so, uh, anyway, we're going to go through these. If you're already married, you take them, tweak them, add two, change three. And make it your own list, but I want to encourage you to put something in place for your own kids. 
to have a plan as your child is growing up into uh, their teenage years, uh, that you're, you're together, you're on the same page as it relates to what their uh, choice of a spouse might be, might look like. Okay, so I want to just lay a little bit of a groundwork, and then we'll go through the foundational truths, the, uh, these prerequisites that I'm laying out. Some of them are foundational, some of them are practical, some of them are not to be considered until you got the person, until you have a relationship. So I'm just going to lay that out for you. But um, as I was thinking about this, this message tends to relate probably firstly to those that are single. And I think a a key thing that I want to share with single people is this. There's there's a a real, um, I don't know how to describe it, but there can be a real disdain when you're single for being single. You can get to this place of being completely discontent with being uh, single and solitary. And, um, and it's okay to have a desire to be married. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a God-given thing. But I've seen and met singles who they get so distraught over the, the fact of them not being married that they disdain their current reality in life. And what they, what they misunderstand is that whatever state you're in, uh, there's a there's a biblical truth, and Paul gives it to us real clear that it's to be you're to be content in your status of life. That means just to be happy in heart and and delighted in God, whether you're single or married. Beloved, that can be a truth that will settle your soul in a way that uh, no other truth can. That you'll be locked in and content in God. Regardless of whether you're married, regardless of whether you're single, regardless of whether you're rich, regardless of whether you're poor. Paul uses, uh, on, a, on a couple different occasions in the New Testament, Paul uses the issue of finance to speak to this, uh, this issue of contentment. But it applies to being married or to being single. And, and he gives us those ideas pri- primarily in 1 Corinthians 7. He lays out. What he says are his opinions about, about marriage. He goes, these things I say, not the Lord, but he goes, but I think I've got the Holy Spirit and I can give you some opinions. And you actually have that in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a really interesting part of scripture. And so I want to say this. Uh, you will miss much of what God is trying to do in your life uh, if you're single and all you can ever think about is what it's going to be like when you're married. There is a, there is a delight in the place of being single, that you'll never get back. You'll never get that back. It's a, a unique status of life that, ne- that needs to be appreciated, honored, and enjoyed, and delighted in. And you need to be content in that place if you're single. Don't live despising your current condition, imagining that a future condition is going to make you fulfilled. That's not truth. Don't live despising your current condition, imagining that a future condition is going to make you fulfilled. That is not truth. The last thing that you want to do is, as an unfulfilled single person, find another unfulfilled single person and then jump on and get married, imagining that now your marriage is going to fulfill you. Somebody said it this way. He goes, when you do that, it's like two leeches with no dog. Just keep sucking blood out of each other and everybody's unhappy because you imagine that that person is what's going to fulfill you and it's always God that will bring fulfillment. So whatever state you're in, be content. Be glad with God's gift to you. 
Paul's real clear. He goes, if you're single, you can think about the things of the Lord. If you're married, you got to think about the things of your spouse. That's just truth. And, and, and that's a good governor to, uh, to be able to handle your, uh, to be able to, so you can be able to handle your emotions and, uh, and, and the desires that you have. So as you're single, find contentment in God and don't disdain your current reality and see it as a problem. Your current reality is a gift to you, preparing you for your future. It is. Working through the challenges of being single, experiencing the blessings of it, that is a gift to you, preparing you for your future. Okay. All right, so I'm going to give you seven uh, prerequisites for marriage. And uh, since marriage, the point of it is to be a declaration of the glory of God. Since marriage is a, a presentation of who God is to the earth, it only uh, makes sense. It only stands to reason that the first two requirements are knowledge of God issues. That's a, a major, major thing that people kind of bypass. And I'm finding and have found in my own life that the issue of the knowledge of God is the most important thing for humans in every area of their life, no matter what the area is, your view of God dictates and determines how you approach whatever that area is. And it's so critical as it relates to marriage. So I'll lay these out for you. The first two are foundational biblical truths. And the first one is requirement of marriage. Number one, are you ready? Here we go. First one is, the bridal paradigm, understanding the bridal paradigm. You might say, well, that sounds kind of flowery or lofty. Well, actually, Paul says it a little differently, but this one is really, really uh, grounded scripturally. He says it in Ephesians 5. He says this, verse 25. You're turned there already. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The New American Standard says gave himself up for her. That little sentence is so, it's, I mean, it will identify you, uh, men. It will totally identify you. For, your, for those that are married, for those that are single, here's the thing. If your marriage relationship and your relationship to your wife doesn't look like Jesus' relationship to the church, something's radically amiss. Something's really, really, really wrong. Because it is the kernel, it's the core truth of marital relationships that we relate to one another in marriage as Jesus and, his, and, and the church relate to one another. That's the point of the picture. The point of this mystery, Paul gives it to us right there in Ephesians 5. He says, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking in regard to Christ and the church and in his key teaching on marriage. He goes, this mystery is a, is a declaration of the knowledge of God and Jesus' uh, relationship to his church. For years and years and years, I had many, many, many marriage teachings, 
studies, went on uh, marriage retreats. But it wasn't until I studied the Song of Solomon that something clicked and shifted in my heart as it related to my marriage. And the Song of Solomon is the key biblical book devoted to the picture of Jesus, the bridegroom, and his, his passionate desires and love for his bride, for the church. It's written in an allegory, but it, it, the truths cannot be missed and they cannot be overlooked. For years and years and years, I just thought the Song of Solomon was just one of those flowery, kind of just flowery books for the women's ministry or something. You know, I just, you just don't pay attention to that one. There's just a few books you just don't pay attention to in the Bible. We wouldn't say that, but that's just kind of how you think, you know, when you, you kind of focus on the New Testament, the epistles, some key prophetic books, but you don't read Song of Solomon. I mean, you just kind of think that. Song of Solomon is the key picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. And when I began to study that book, something changed in me. And so I say, understanding the bridal paradigm, it's a foundational requirement for those who want to get married, and it's predominantly for the men. It's predominantly for the men. And the reason why is it's laid out right there in Ephesians 5. What we're called to do in marriage is we are called to love our wives in the manner that Jesus loves the church. And here's the deal. You can't begin to do that unless you have a comprehension of the way that Jesus loves you. This thing cannot be some idea, yes, God loves me, yes, God loves the church, I sort of get it. It cannot be that. It's got to be something where that truth penetrates your soul and impacts you emotionally. It's got to be something where it, it, it deals with the inner workings of your life and transforms your relationship and the way you relate to God. It's got to hit you at that level or else it will never transcend into your human relationships. You've got to know the way that he loves you because that's the way Paul uh, admonishes and really commands men to love their wives. Love them, men, the way Jesus loves you. What a powerful thought. The, the problem is we get married without that peace in place. We sort of just relegate the love of God to some sort of secondary truth, just something sort of everybody knows. And it hasn't impacted our soul. It hasn't changed our hearts. It hasn't softened us and tenderized us. It hasn't moved us emotionally. And therefore, we are, we, we, we are disabled from being able to offer that to our spouse. This is so critical. I, I, if you are a young man and you're wanting to get married, you better do a season in Song of Solomon and let it rock your world. I mean, take, take a, a few months, take about six months, and let Jesus blow your mind. The fiery, burning, desirous heart of Jesus for his people. The, I mean, the jealousy that causes fury to arise in his soul, where he, he comes against everything that would hinder love. And those eyes of of absolute desire that Jesus has for his people. The way that he thinks about you, sir, 
If you don't comprehend that, you'll never be able to offer love to your wife in the way that he loves you. Now, I will say this. He loves us perfectly. The best you'll ever do for your wife, the best you'll ever love her is broken. That's all right. But that's just something we're all broken and fallen people. But what we do is we have the baseline in place. We have the, 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 the comprehension of the standard. The standard is the lavish love of Christ for his church. And therefore, we love her the way he loves us. We take care of her the way that, that he takes care of us. We fight for her the way that he fights for us. We serve her the way that he serves us. We love her by laying down our lives. Ha! The way that he laid down his life for us. You remember that verse where Jesus just sat on the couch and asked her to bring him a bunch of potato chips while he was watching the football game, right? It's not in there. What is in there is God doing the most crazy thing, becoming a man so that he could be tempted in all ways that we are. He got down on our level, God, humiliates himself by becoming a human, gets on our level, deals with all the emotions and feelings and temptations that we deal with. God goes through that. That would have been enough. But then he allows humanity to hate him and reject him, spit on him and torture him. He suffers unto death and he dies. God does that Jesus does that. Why? So that he can, can have for himself a bride from the earth. And the whole while, he speaks truth and love to a people that would say yes to him. I want to say this real clear, and I'm going to hit this hard in another session, but I want to say this. There is a requirement on men in marriage that most of us don't have a comprehension of, and it has to do with this. You're going to lay down, when you get married, man, you're going to lay down your life unto the death, unto the sanctification of your wife. Paul is so theologically clear in Ephesians 5. So clear. The requirement of man in marriage, is to lay his life down unto the sanctifying of his wife. So, my point becomes this, foundational truth number one, requirement number one, if you don't know the way Jesus loves you, you will be extremely handicapped in offering that level of love, in offering that type of love, I should say, to your wife. You've got to find out the burning heart of the bridegroom God. You've got to let it wash away shame. You've got to let it move your heart out of hiding. You've got to let it move you into intimacy and openness. You've got to let his heart of desire and longing for you penetrate you in a deep way so that you can therefore approach your bride in the same way that Jesus approaches you. There's a a verse in Song of Solomon, and it's in in chapter 2. That it's just, it gives me the picture. When I think about the burning bridegroom Jesus and his love for me, I always picture this. In Song of Solomon 2, I believe it's around verse 9, she says, he's, he's standing behind our wall. He's gazing through the lattice. He's looking in the window. And it's the picture 
of the bridegroom, he's come to her again and he's going to invite her to come away and partner with him. And you get this picture of this one who is not just a sort of like a, a helpless romantic, but he is, he is forceful and he's fiery and he's passionate and he's got his eye on her and, and she's the object of his desire and nothing's going to get in the way. And he's sort of looking through the window like staring at her. And I just kind of get this picture of the one who is the king, who is the lion. And he's sort of, I just imagine in a, in a, in a fatal attraction style way, he's kind of stalking. Because <laughs> he, he's totally taken with her and nothing is going to get in the way. And that's the way I picture Jesus' love for me. Radical, burning. So intense, so passionate, so aware of me, so aware of my weakness, and he doesn't care. So aware of my flaws, and he doesn't care. He wants me, all of me. The bridal paradigm, that message is not some little, you know, just weak message. It's got such incredible teeth. And when you see the love of God in that fashion, violent love, he says, he goes, my love is more violent than death, more cruel than the grave. Jealousy, like fire is my love. When you get that, you go, okay, wait a minute. This thing that I'm doing in my marriage, it it will transition your marital love from a self-serving love to a self-giving love. A friend said to me this week, he said, self might be the worst of all four-letter words. Because it's the one that, I tell you what, it's the one that gets in the way of love, and it's the one that is required to die when you get married. So the bridal paradigm, foundational truth, got to have it. It's a requirement. It's a prerequisite for marriage. Young lady, if you're thinking about getting married and, and the guy doesn't know anything about the bridal paradigm, just press pause. Give him a Bible study. Really? Give him a Bible study. So here you go, six months, talk to me. Talk to me after that. Tell me what I'm dark but lovely means and then you can talk to me. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm not joking. That guy's heart better be alive in love, honey, or he'll never love you the way that you want to be loved. Hear me. I don't care how good looking, cool, how much he makes people smile. If his heart isn't alive in love, he won't love you the way that your heart longs to be loved. All right. Foundational truth number two. Again, it's about the knowledge of God. Number two is understanding the father heart of God. And this is primarily a word to the women. Now, I will say this. In my parenting, nothing has kept me plumb-lined more than understanding the Father heart of God. It's, it's been absolutely critical to me in my parenting. It lets me see when I act towards my children in a way that's not like him, and, and those things I identify and I have to repent toward them, but it also encourages me and gives me uh, energy to be able to act toward them in a way that the Father acts toward me. He loves me, delights in me, cares for me, comforts me, protects me. I want to show you this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a, 
it's a, an awesome word to men, I think, for parenting, but I think it's a critical word to women as it relates to marriage. There are, there are certain things that men are looking for in marriage and certain things that women are looking for in marriage. They're different. They're looking for different things. Men and women are different, and they look for different things. Women tend to look more for, for uh, protection and care and provision. They want to know it's safe. They, they want to know that they've got, they've got uh, their back covered. They've got somebody they can trust. They want, they want to know that there's someone there that's looking out for them, and no matter what, they can be, they can be as flawed and frail as they want, but, but their husband is going to love them no matter what, care for them and protect them through every storm and challenge. I've asked many women, because uh, we, do, we do plenty of premarital counseling, and I've asked many women, I said, how would you rank the issue of feeling safe, cared for, and protected in terms of your marriage? How would you rank that? Where is that on a scale of 1 to 10? And, and I mean, the vast majority, I don't think I've ever had a woman say anything different, really. But the vast majority say it's, it's at the top. I mean, it is, it is a, like a 9 or a 10. Feeling safe, feeling cared for, feeling protected. And then I'll look at the man and I'll say, now... How many times have you ever thought, when I get married, I want to feel safe? No man, not one of them has ever gone, that's the number one for me too. None. <laughs> Men and women are different. They think differently. Women are looking for different things in marriage. The issue of the father heart of God, it takes care of so many of the things that women are looking for, it settles those issues so that then they can, they can, it enables them then because the issues are settled in their heart. It enables them then to trust one who is not trustworthy. Because in marriage, I don't care how good the guy is or how good the girl is, neither one of you guys are 100% trustworthy. <laughs> one brave amen. It's true. She will disappoint you. He will uh, disappoint you. That's the point. We're broken. We find the cross in each other. We find the cross in each other. In our relationship with each other, that's how we get to go to the cross because that broken person is going to do you wrong. We make pledges on our marriage, on our wedding day, if, if there wasn't an implication that the person was going to break the pledge, they wouldn't have to make the pledge. Till death do us part. You wouldn't have to make that pledge if it wasn't implied that, gosh, people would ordinarily break this. Do you see my point? You're pledging to one that's broken and fallen. You're pledging, you're pledging to one that's not trustworthy in the highest measure to trust, to care, to give, to love, to serve, to offer yourself. And you know that other person, they're not 100% going to do that. We pledge to one another and we live our lives walking it out and <laughs> forgiving and confessing when we blow it. That's called marriage. You find the cross in each other. So the father heart of God, here's the deal. When you understand the, the, the loving, tender heart of a father who's comforting and caring, who's safe, 
protecting and offers provision. Always taking care of his kids. Always looking out. Always listening. When you understand that, something begins to settle down in your soul that enables you to no longer have to look to another person to get all your care, comfort, protection from that person. You know you've got it from the Father. And it shifts something in your connectedness to your spouse. As a woman, you'll connect to your spouse knowing that he's weak and knowing that he's not the final say on whether or not you're protected. The Father is. It will shift something. Look at this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at his name. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You won't connect to the comforting heart of the Father. The comforting heart of the Father of mercies. You won't connect to him if you don't understand him as that. If you think of him as a slave driver, as a taskmaster, you won't run to him for comfort. And subsequently, you'll live protecting yourself Covering yourself, I'm speaking primarily to women, you'll live uh, unable to, to engage with, with a, a real um, intimacy, a real susceptibility to, to your spouse because you don't comprehend the father of mercies who's comforting you, who's caring for you, who's protecting you through everything in life. When you understand Abba, he's got you. It won't be this travesty when your husband fails you. There will be emotional pains and challenges, and I'm not belittling those things. We walk through emotional pains and challenges in this life. But I tell you, when you've got these issues settled on the inside, that the Abba is the one who's ultimately got you, it changes your perspective on so many different things. And I tell young men this all the time because, you know, from time to time, a young man will come to me and he'll say, yeah, I've got my eye on so-and-so. And, and then um, I'll say, well, what, what are their, what's her relationship like with her dad? And he'll say, oh, he, she hates her dad. I go, yeah, oh, yeah, here's why. He's a this, 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 and this. I go, really? Oh, yeah, he's a bad guy. All this bad stuff he does. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. You're in trouble, man. What, what do you mean? I'm saving her from that. Oh, oh, no, no, you're not. Here's your problem. Your problem is uh, the, the girl you like, she has a problem with her dad, and the, probably the main reason she's got a problem with her dad is because she's got a problem with the eternal father, and what you've got going on there is this problem with male headship in her life, and if she is rebellious toward her father and doesn't like him, in a minute, guess what? You're going to be the very representative of her father to you, I mean to her. You're going to be that representative, and where she's been rebellious and hateful towards her dad, in a minute, bud, it's going to be pointing right at you. They go, what? I go, oh, yeah. No, that can't be right. She loves me. Okay, bro. Here's my number. Call me in six months. 
I've literally had that conversation and had the person call me and go, oh, no. Dude, I don't know what happened. We were doing great. We got married, and all of a sudden, she's like, she hates me. I go, dude, I told you. The problem isn't you. The problem isn't her dad. The problem is she doesn't have a revelation, the father heart of God, and feeling comforted and cared for. She's lashing out in anger because she's feeling she's got to cover and care and protect herself. And I tell you, young lady, if you will get a revelation of the kind, compassionate heart, the caring, protecting heart of the father for you, I understand we've got emotional wounds, we've got hurdles, we've got things we've we've been through in life. I understand all that. But if you'll give yourself to a season of study on the Father heart of God, and you'll come to believe in the one who is the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, something will settle in you. Something will change in you. And you won't be looking to another man to complete you. You won't be solely trusting in a, 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 a fallen, broken human man to protect you. Only him. I, I mean, we're looking for that in our spouse for sure. But when, when that fails, you've got, to be, you've got to be grounded internally in your soul to know that the Father's got you. The Father's got you. I tell you, there is such a confidence in my soul when relationships fail me, when, when, when friends fail me, when my marriage is not in a good spot, there's a confidence in my soul over this. The Father is the Father of all mercies, the God of all comforts. He'll never fail me. He's got me. He's got me. Oh, man, there's something about that. And it changes your approach. It changes your approach when there's problems. If you get married, you will go through problems. And in the midst of the problem, rather than seeing this as the end of everything, we're having a problem, you recognize the God of all comforts. He's going to take care of your heart, and he's going to protect you, and he's going to see you through. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Even if people do. Even if people do. Even if your spouse does. Paul said this, talking about contentment. He said, godliness with contentment is a means of great gain. And here's why. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. He's talking about finances, but man, as I was staring at that verse, I went, man, that applies to our marriages. You didn't come into this world married, not to a person, and you're not leaving this world married to a person. When you leave this world, guess what? We're not given in marriage in the regeneration. When you get that glorified body, you will be married, but it won't be to that person you're sitting next to. You'll be married to Jesus. You're not even take. think about that. You're not even taking your marriage with you. You're not taking your money. You're not taking your clothes. You're not taking your job, your position. You're not even taking your marriage. That puts it a little bit in a different perspective. Because there's a marriage that we're getting prepared through, getting prepared for through our current marriage. We're getting prepared to be married to perfection. I just want to throw this at you. If you're having a problem getting married and, and staying uh, in love with, with an imperfect one, and, and, and you're having a problem with you and your imperfections and them and their imperfections, what's it going to be like when you actually are married to somebody who's perfect? two guys imperfect having a hard time well guess what when you mr and mrs imperfect marry the one who is perfect whoa 
That might really expose some issues. He's preparing us for that, is my point. You got to have the revelation of who he is as a bridegroom, God burning in passion and love, loving you in your weakness. So, so, so men, so you can love your, your wife. You've got to have it. If you don't, and if you're married, you don't have that revelation. It doesn't move you. It doesn't touch you. I mean, regularly, and I'm not talking it, it touched you one time, one message, one time. But I'm saying it doesn't move your heart on a regular basis that God, the bridegroom God says, I betrothed you to me forever. You are mine. That revelation doesn't move you. You need to take a season and go right headlong into the intimacy message, predominantly the, the, the bridegroom message, the, the message of the bridal paradigm. And ladies, the issue of the father heart, it will settle your soul in a way that almost nothing else does. Comprehending who he is as the father that's got you taken care of, covered, protected. You're safe. You're safe with him. Okay, now we're going to talk about some practical considerations. Those first two are extremely practical, but they're more spiritual foundational truths in my mind. Here's some practical things. Number three, gosh, I almost took the whole message, almost took our whole time preaching on just those two. Well, we'll just work through it. Here we go. Number three, you got to have a reasonable financial stability. If you're going to get married. I've talked to young people. They're getting married. They, you know, they got all their little plans. You know, we, I only make this much. She only makes this much. But when we put it together, it'll be exactly what we need. What you don't realize is that when you come together and get married, you're, not only does your, your income it gets bigger, but your expenses get bigger as well. And I've, I've watched people who've got terrible financial uh, They're in a terrible financial situation, imagining that somehow marriage is going to fix it. Marriage doesn't fix your financial situation. It makes it worse. There's more stuff. Dude, you have no idea what she has to buy for the bathroom. You have no clue. You you got no clue. All them lotions and powders and hair. There's four or five things they got to put on their hair. You don't even know about it. It's real. I'm not, I'm, and it's funny, but it's real. She's in there dabbing and wiping and putting three or four different things on. You're like, what is that smell? It's a plethora of aroma. That's why, that's why they got Bath and Body Works to get all those lotions, all the same flavor. You got the soap and the this and the that. They're all the same flavor now, so they can smell like one thing instead of 17 things combined. Your, your expenditures will go up. Marriage is not a means to bring you to financial stability, I promise you. And if you um, are like wild with your money and you're in big debt and you're out of control, getting married is not going to fix that. It's going to exasperate. It's going to exaggerate it. It's going to make it worse. Proverbs 24, it says this. In verse 27, it says, Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. And what it's talking about is this, it's giving us a principle. You, you settle your stuff externally before you go ahead and, and build your family, build your house internally. 
And so if you've got a ton of debt and you've got, you got a, you know, a negative financial position, that's probably not the time to get married. What you want to do is try to get that thing more, more stable. You don't have to have a ton of money. I, I, I mean, God knows, I don't think that you got to be just wealthy, wealthy, wealthy to get married. I, I mean, you can get married with very little, and, and it's fine. The, 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 the deal is, if you get married with very little, you just got to make sure that you're spending less than you're, than you're making. And uh, that was a real key for Mary Beth and I. When we got married, we just decided we wanted to, to knock out our debt as fast as we could. And uh, we've never, you know, we've been married, I guess now, um, 18 years We've never had a massive surplus, um, always enough, always had the ability to give, but because we focus on debt, we've never carried big debt uh, our entire marriage. Uh, the only debt we have right now is our house. We've got our cars paid off. We don't have credit card debt. We don't, those things will absolutely shipwreck a marriage. Financial pressure is one of the key things that causes people to begin to fracture and sever. And so getting into marriage with a ton of financial pressure that you don't have a plan for, beloved, that's just a recipe for disaster. Get a plan for what you're going to do with your finances. You got to, and here's the thing, you got to be on the same page as it relates to finances. And that boils back to a vision issue. What God calls, is calling you to do together. You've got to have a vision that's compatible so that if the Lord says, hey, sell it all and move there, somebody's not going to get upset because they're going to be missing their stuff. You've got to be lined up in the way that you think about money, the way you think about things. You've, you've got to have a, a financial stability about your life. And, and, and when, when you guys come together, if that thing is a mess financially, I tell you, it'll just become a bigger mess. And I've seen people, and they love each other, they're, they're good folks, but because their finances are a mess, it's just brought pressure on their marriage for years and years and years. I've seen people divorce just, that, that, and that the financial thing was the, the root issue. Because they didn't have challenges until the, the financial thing, uh, just for years and years and years, just beat them down. And then finally, it, it produced all these other, you know, problems. And they end up getting divorced over finances when, when they totally loved each other and had a lot of other good things going. You've got to get the financial thing landed before you get married. And, and it doesn't mean you've got to have a zillion dollars, but you've got to have a plan. If you've got debt, you've got to get a plan to get out of debt. You've got to have, you have, to have a, a plan to budget. You've got to be on the same page with how you spend your money. Those things are critical. There's a ton of financial resources out there. We, we offer those things to our staff. We, we bring people through. They, they come, many of them come out of high school or, or just out of college. They've never had a budget, and they don't know how to, you know, uh, to manage their money. And, and uh, we bring them right through a financial deal just to try to give them a semblance of, of reality on how to handle themselves uh, as an adult. So financial stability, reasonable financial stability. All right, number four, emotional stability. This is broad, but it's important, and here's why. People imagine that they've got their emotional problem, their outburst of anger, or their, their you know, in, in, intense anxiety, or their, their radical mood swings, and they imagine that when they get married, that marriage is going to somehow soothe their problem with anger, or soothe their anxiety. Or soothe their mood swings. If I can just get married, I just love them so much. I just know it just helps settle my heart. That is wrong. It's really, really wrong. If you've got emotional volatility, 
And there's a bunch of different ways that you can have emotional volatility. If you're emotionally volatile, when you get married, you will become more volatile. You will become way more explosive. Marriage isn't going to soothe that. Listen, if you're thinking about somebody and you see that they've got a, a, a real volatile something going on in their emotions, mark it down. That's not going to get better. That's just not by itself going to get better once you get married. That's going to get more intense. Come on. This is important. I was sharing this with, with Ashley, my assistant, the other day about emotional stability. She goes, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that you should be emotionally stable before you get married. Like, it seems like the most normal idea to me. But I think it's because we believe that when you get married, it's going to handle, it's going to be like emotional utopia. It is going to be like an emotional amusement park, like roller coaster world. It, it, it doesn't make it, e- getting married doesn't make your, it easier on your emotions. It makes it more challenging. And so you, you got to get those things kind of handled. Um, I don't want to minimize emotional issues. People go through very challenging things, and it's, it's, it can be very difficult for people to overcome. Jesus addresses many issues that affect the way that we manage our emotions and our psyche and the way that we work. He, he, he uh, addresses issues like anxiety, about worry. I mean, Matthew 6, he spends a lot of time talking about worry. You know what? Imagine this. Imagine if you could have all the energy back just instantly put into you that you've spent on worrying. You'd be like a marathon runner some kind of superhuman energy. We spend so much energy on worrying and Jesus is really explicit about worry. He goes, don't do that. He's got a word for you. Don't worry. God's got you. And we spend so much time worrying about all the what ifs. Do you, have you ever thought about how many of the what ifs you've worried about that never were, they never came to pass? All your what ifs? I mean, people sometimes are way out here on the what ifs. I'm like, whoa, 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 what are we even talking about? Because they're at the fourth or fifth level of what if. And they're expending themselves emotionally. Jesus deals with that. He deals with anxiety. He deals with issues of anger. He deals with all sorts of different things. And, and, and probably the, the chief thing he deals with is pride. And that area of pride, can, it can be the root of so many emotional issues. And I, I would say this, that the message of intimacy, the, 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 two, the two coins, the two sides of the coin, the father heart and the bridal paradigm, that message, and the message of the Sermon on the Mount, is, it's the key, those are the key messages to help get your emotions stabilized and settled. Spending seasons in those messages, they will get your heart settled, they'll, they'll, they'll help you to get delivered from worry, and they will absolutely chop your pride down. The key message of the Sermon on the Mount, the, 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 if, I could, if I could boil it down to one message, it's meekness. And that issue of meekness, that, that revelation about meekness, serving others, laying your life down, that, that will transform you. I had a friend, a pastor, who we talked um, after, sometime after I'd, I'd come back from Kansas City where I'd really gotten, really ministered to on the bridal paradigm. And, uh, and he said this to me, he said, you know, um, he goes, I counsel people all the time. He goes, people's 
their emotions and, and their personalities, they don't change. He goes, you counsel people and tell them what to do, but their personality won't change. Even if you tell them all the steps to do, and even if they follow all the steps to do, he goes, it won't change their personality. He goes, when you went and you came back after you got the bridal paradigm, he goes, your personality changed. And beloved, that's what happens. The message of the love of God and the message of meekness, it will, it will begin to change your temperament even. It will begin to heal your soul and change your temperament. And so th- these truths cannot be overlooked. They can't be gotten on the run. They've got to be, time has got to be spent in them. And uh, if you've got emotional instabilities in your life, I want to encourage you, run hard in the message of God's love and run hard in the message of the Sermon on the Mount and watch how it transforms you. And sometimes you've got to get a little inner healing. I'm happy for that. I'm glad for that. I would encourage you, get that before you get married. Amen. Get a little inner healing before you get married because you'll have plenty of opportunities to lose your inner healing after you get married. All right, three more. Here we go. Number five. Now, I think of those first four as steps to get you where you're even in the game, where you can even think about getting in a relationship. If those things aren't landed for you, don't worry about getting in a relationship. Just worry about those things and allow the Lord to begin to craft your heart. If you've got emotional instabilities, you've got crazy financial stuff, if you don't have a revelation of God's love for you, I tell you what, just focus on those. Don't seek a, a spouse and let the Lord craft your heart and he will begin to direct you when it's time. Now, if you've already kind of got those things landed or if you're already with a person, not every person that's with a person has those things landed, so go back and do those four. But here's, how, here's the things I would say. If you're already with a person and you're considering marriage, then these things you need to have in place regarding that individual. So the first one is this. It's going to be really radically unpopular for a lot of people. But it's agreement with godly authority. And, and it's parents in the Lord. Here, here's the way it works biblically. Authority equals parents in the Lord. Means godly parents that are giving you godly, uh, godly input. Or leadership in the Lord. Whether it's uh, you know Sunday school teacher, cell group leader, pastor, youth pastor, whoever. Those, those inputs, those um, authorities are given for our aid, not to handcuff us. They're given to help us, not to hurt us. And so many people have this wrong impression that our relationships are supposed to be privatized. And what I mean by that is that... As it relates to other things in life, yes, I, I, submit that to, I submit that to other people, but in relationship, that's all me. I get to make that choice. And uh, I just think that's a false concept. Biblically, I think it's a false concept. In the body of Christ, I think that's a false concept. Um, Paul is pretty clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's just actually look at that verse. It's going to come up on your screen. As it relates to our relationships and everything that we go to, go through, it affects each other. Whether you understand it or not, we're part of one another, and whatever you're going through affects me. Whatever, whatever righteousness you accomplish, whatever sin you choose, whatever you're doing, it's affecting me. Because we're part of the same body. We're part of one another. That's a critical understanding that we almost have no concept of in the West. And the reason why is because we don't generally live in community. We live in subdivisions in our house with fences around our yard. 
We privatize our entire life relationally, imagining that what we do doesn't affect anybody. But the biblical teaching is that we're all part of the same body and we affect one another. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, verse 26, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And he, he expounds in that, in that chapter on, you know, you can't say to this part of the body that I have no need of you. We all have common need of one another and what we do all affects one another. And so this idea of being private sort of in our area of relationships, I think it's a false idea. I think probably because of the breakdown of the family, probably because parents haven't, haven't trained their children, haven't raised them in relationship and in love, that there's been a disconnect between parents and children as it relates to their, their uh, choosing of a spouse. And so therefore, because that disconnect is there, this, this idea of the privatization, I just choose who I want and we just do what we want, that concept has gotten in and it's, it's more mainstream. It's kind of the main way we think about things, that idea is a false idea. And so if you're thinking about getting married, you need to get with somebody that you trust in the Lord, parents, leaders, whoever, and, and let me parentheses, I'm not trying to get more meetings with people, praise the Lord. I'm, it's not me that I'm, I'm telling you to get with. I'm talking about anybody that you know that's a leader, that you love, that's got authority and can say no to you. That's a, big, that's a big one. Are they able to say no to you and you'll listen? That's a, good, that's a good little test to find out if you actually are submitted to anybody. Can they tell you no and you'll actually listen? <laughs> that's a pretty big one. Nobody wants to be told no. And nobody hardly likes to listen to people when they tell you no. There's ways in relationship to work through those things. You know, they tell you no, and you go, okay, I'm going to consider that. Let me, let me take that as a no and take it back to the Lord. And then you go back to the person. You go, you know, I've been praying about this, and for me it feels like a yes. You're saying no. Can we pray about it together? You can work through it. Just because they say the opposite of what you wanted to hear doesn't mean you should sever from them. This is how we work through in relationship. So you get somebody a leader, a family member, a a parent, pastor, somebody who you trust in the Lord who can tell you no, and you go, hey, I really like this this guy. What do you think? It's amazing how they'll have godly wisdom. Well, you know, honey, the fact that, uh, you know, he's addicted to drugs might be a little sign to you that uh, he's not quite ready marriage material right now. But it's amazing how somebody who's not emotionally involved in your love situation, has a clear mind and can assess it real quickly. It's really amazing how they'll, they'll just speak truth to it. And we don't want truth spoken to our situation. We don't want it, especially, don't want to be told no. We especially don't want to be told to wait. People start pulling out that verse, it's better to marry than burn with passion. <laughs> I, I got to get married. No, 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 no. If you're getting married because you're burning with passion, you need to put the brakes on now. There are 87 other issues you need to be thinking about. But my point is, we need to submit this thing to somebody. Submit your relationship to somebody and get input and ask them, what do you think about this? Tell me what the Lord's saying to you. Will you pray with me about this? I'm feeling like this person might be the one. And then listen to what they say and and connect to that person and allow them to, to speak into your life. To me, this isn't something you do just before you're married This is something you do throughout your marriage. Take your marriage and get it 
let it be an open book, either to a counselor or to some trusted friends in the Lord. No, really. The old paradigm is this. If your marriage is in trouble, you need to get counseling. That's a false paradigm. The new paradigm should be this. If you're not in counseling, your marriage is in trouble. Let your marriage be uh, something that you allow people that you trust in the Lord to speak into. It's amazing how much accountability will come to your marriage when you just get a, uh, an objective third party in there. Even if you're doing good. We had the opportunity a few years back uh, to, to sit with a marriage counselor. It was free, and this guy was a really good counselor. And I thought, man, great, free, we're doing good. I'll probably tell him a few things. It'd be great. Man, we sat there and we started talking about, he goes, so tell me, you know, people don't usually come to marriage counseling unless they need to go, well, we, you know, we're doing great. We don't need any counseling. I just thought it'd be fun to be in here just like, have fun. He goes, oh, really? I go, yeah. He goes, oh, well, tell me about uh, one of your, uh, Tell me about one of your kind of recurring fights. Well, we got a couple. There ain't a big deal. And just tell us. Tell me, tell me about them. Let's, let's just hear it. So we start unpacking the way, you know, because most marriages, you have the same fight. It's a different topic, but it's the same fight over and over and over. And you have about four of the same fights. So we start unpacking one of our fights. And this guy, man, he sliced me and diced me and opened me up. All of a sudden, man, it was like a mirror put in front of me. A little accountability. Everybody does better when somebody's watching. You get a little accountability in there, and you start realizing, whoa, man, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was in terms of the way I'm relating to my spouse. Whoa, maybe I can actually lay my life down a little bit more. Whoa, maybe I can actually employ the Sermon on the Mount a little bit more. Gosh, I actually wrote a book on that, huh? Maybe I can actually grow in this thing. We, we met with this guy some, and I'll tell you what, it was transformational. And it wasn't because we were in trouble. You know what? We were in trouble in certain areas that we didn't even know it because we didn't have any accountability. You know what? Nobody walks out their Christianity without any accountability, Nobody walks out their relationship with the Lord without accountability. Everybody should have people speaking into their life as it relates to their relationship with the Lord. Why not your marriage? I'm all for it. Man, get marriage counseling. Don't ask me, but get some marriage counseling. We actually refer people. We refer people to get marriage counseling, and here's why. There's a few things that we can do really, really well. We can do night and day prayer really, really well. We can do some training and some teaching. I mean, really well for us. I don't know if it's really well for the world, but it's really well for us. We do this really hard. We do training and teaching really hard. We live the Sermon on the Mount really hard. We don't imagine that we've got all the answers as it relates to everybody's marriage. What I'd way rather do is take a couple who's been around and does a marriage ministry, who does been doing marriage for 25 years, and say, hey, listen, these guys are awesome. Go to them. We, and so we've got a few ministries that we're connected to out here, and we just refer all of our marriage stuff right to those folks, and they, they speak right into it, because this is what they've been doing for 25 years, got degrees and all that. I think sometimes our mentalities of being a full-service pastor or a full-service ministry gets us off into areas of ministry that we don't have any expertise in. I would way rather encourage somebody to connect to somebody who does marriage counseling like, you know, all day, every day, and has for 25 years, then sit down with, with uh, couples and try to act like I know marriage. I know a few things, but I'm not a marriage counselor. Does that make sense? 
And I hope that doesn't offend you, but it's just the way it's, it is. When, and I think it's way more healthy. Because I think so many places, the pastor imagines he's got to be Joe Blow. Marriage counselor, preacher, teacher, everybody's, you know, hospital visitor, going to do every funeral. And, and it's like, man, bro, really, you can probably only do about two of those actually sort of good. We don't really want the rest of the five things you're trying to do. Just let somebody else do those. <laughs> Sorry. Just saying it how it is. All right. So you need accountability. Last two, here we go. Number six, sexual purity. If somebody's got a sexual hang-up, any kind of a, a, a consistent sexual sin that they're in, whether it's internet pornography or they're having a problem with one another and they're in fornicating before they get married, whatever it is, uh, sexual immorality needs to be um, totally handled before you get married. And, and there's, a, again, another thought that if you get married, it's going to take care of your sexual immorality problem. That is false. Listen to me. Oh, this, I, women think this all the time. Well, I know he's got a little problem with pornography, but, you know, when we get married, we'll be able to have sex, and so then after that, he won't have a problem with pornography. Honey, that's just wrong. If he has got an addiction or a problem with pornography where he's practicing pornography on a regular basis, he will drag that right into your marriage. That's real. He needs to get that thing handled. Whatever the, whatever the sexual hang-up is, it needs to get handled before y'all get married. Before y'all get married. And I've seen that thing produce incredible fruit in the marriage relationship. When the, when the couple will wait, they'll uh, get themselves pure uh, sexually, and they'll allow the Lord to, to, to cleanse their heart and, and cleanse themselves in that area. And then when they come together, it truly is a holy matrimony. I've seen that thing become, a, a, I mean, a beautiful story of redemption. I mean, on several different occasions. On the other hand, when I've seen couples that, are, that uh, they've got a hang-up sexually, but they go ahead and they rush to marriage, they'll drag those hang-ups right into their marriage. And I've seen that actually destroy marriages. You've got to get that thing cut off and get that thing purified That sexual relationship is a major part of the marital relationship, and it's got to be pure heading into marriage. You don't want it if it's not pure, I promise you. You don't want it if it's not pure. Ephesians 5 says this, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. There's so many verses we could go on. Here's kind of how I handle couples that are dealing with problems with sexual immorality. For me, it's a red light. It's a red light if either partner is currently practicing um, or having a problem with uh, sexual perversion. Whether it's fornication, whether it's pornography, whatever it is, it's a red light for me. I won't, I won't actually participate in their marriage if there's a current, uh, I could, I mean, I, I could be totally best friends with the person, uh, but I won't participate as a, 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 an efficient in their marriage in their wedding, if they, either one has a current problem with sexual immorality. It's a yellow light for me if they've had a repetitive problem and they've got about three months. If they've got three months clear, I, I, I feel like that's a yellow light. Three to six months could be, could maybe not be. It's, it's a yellow light. It's a caution. It's a green light if they're six months or more clear. Because it's six months, it, I mean, you've got to actually have liberty working in your soul to be clear of sexual perversion, to, to be living and walking that out. 
And so that's just a standard that I apply. And, and I've applied it, and it's been painful at times for me and for others. But I do it because I care about them, and I care about uh, the Scripture, and I care about my, my honor before the Lord. And so I, I can be very close to people and just say, no, I think you've got to hold on. You got this issue with uh, pornography or habitual masturbation. You got to hold on and, and get that thing handled before you get married. And uh, sometimes people hadn't liked that so much, but I, I, I tell you what, I'm going to have to not give account to them. I'm going to have to give account to Jesus. And so I think that's, that's the best way I can honor them and honor the Lord. And hopefully I can set them on a trajectory that will be a blessing in their marriage rather than something that's going to crop up as a problem in a day ahead. And uh, un unsanctified uh, uh, sexual stuff. Don't imagine that when she, just because you get married that that unsanctified sexual problem is just going to go away. It will not go away. It will get dragged right into your marriage. And you do not want that, I promise you. Amen. All right, number seven. This is the final one. You guys okay with me hanging in there? Just give me another minute. I'll finish this. Prerequisites. I like this. The last one is this. You need a season of disclosure. What does that mean? That means you gotta be, you gotta be together for a little while. I watch people get shocked by who their spouse is after they get married because they had such a short season before they got married of dating and being together. And, and they get blown away when they actually find out, whoa, the mask is off and I married a monster. What happened? And here's why. No matter who you are, you will have a, uh, I mean, even if you have the best intentions to be authentic, you will have a, a time where you are on your best behavior and you're just acting the way that you think they want you to act. And you'll be trying to be that, that perfect person and that's all you'll ever show them. You won't, you won't do any bodily functions around them or, you know, I mean, you just use your napkin at every meal. I mean, you just clean, tidy, iron your shirts. It's amazing when you fall in love how many things you just start doing. You start ironing your stuff, actually putting on a little deodorant here and there. I mean... You take care of yourself in a way that's unusual because you're trying to gain that person's affection and affirmation. Well, what happens is this, that if, they don't, if people don't go through a season, a, a, a long enough season of disclosure, they get shocked when they get married by who they married. And so I, I like, my kind of rule is six months. You got to be together for six months before I'll marry you. And, and I like it to be six months unengaged. And here's why. Because I think of the time that you're dating or courting, whatever you call that, that time when you're, when you're with one another, that's a preparation for actually living married. You're actually disclosing things in your heart. You're finding out about the other person. You're getting to know one another. I think of the engagement as simply a, a time to prepare for that wedding day. The way that weddings are in our current society, and anybody that's been through this, it takes so much planning and so much work. You want to see people with their head run around like chickens with their head cut off. Find me an engaged couple because they are running, running and racing. They got 
four months, you know, they got this big day and everybody's going to be there. We got invitations, got to get a dress, some kind of cake, got to get a church, got to get a band, we got to get some, we got all this stuff we got to get. They don't even know each other. They're just yelling at each other. I mean, they're blowing up. I have so many couples, I'm counseling them before they get married. They're engaged. I'm trying to counsel them. They don't know why they're fighting. I'm like, because you guys are working, you know, full-time jobs and full-time the rest of your life just to try to make one massive event come off. You, you can't even function. And so I think of the engagement as preparation for the wedding day. So I like them to be together six months, even up before they get engaged. And then that way they've kind of disclosed their hearts, kind of figure out who each other is, kind of have a time where there's no pressure to sort of iron out wrinkles. You know, once that ring's on, it's a lot of pressure. You can't kind of, it's, it's a little harder to back off. You can back off, but it's harder. And so I encourage people to get six months time of, of disclosure a lot of people don't even realize this, but they fall in love with the idea of being in love. They didn't actually fall in love with that person. They fell in love with the idea of being in love. I'm so glad I'm in love. I'm going to get married. I'm in love. They don't even know, what, they don't even know who they're in love with. They're just glad they're, being, they're in love. And then so often people fall in love with the fantasy of who their person is. And uh, some, some marriage writers, they say there's six people in every relationship. I think there's eight. There's eight people in every relationship. There's who you really are, who you think you are, who your partner thinks you are, and who you're going to be. So you're bringing four in just yourself, and then they're bringing four in. And at any time, you could be any one of those four. At any time, the real you could surface, then the fantasy of who you're trying to be could surface, the person that they think you are could surface, the person you're going to be could any time. Any one of those eight people could be talking. <laughs> it takes a minute to figure out who these people are. <laughs> I know I'm dating one person, but there's four of you in front of me. Who are you? It takes a minute to go, okay, you're not really the person I thought you were. And you're not the person you're going to be, but I can see that person. You're definitely not who you think you are. Okay, I got you. I, I got you in my sights. Now, are you the person that I want to marry? You see my point? That doesn't happen in three months, folks. That doesn't happen in three months. And in six months is really, I think, short. So I'm, I'm in favor of long dating, short engagement. That's my, my personal. Because engagement anymore, engagement anymore is just about you trying to put off, bring up, you know, pull off that production. That's mostly what engagement is about, right? In just the way it's done in our society. I, I'm in favor of a different low-key version of marriage. If, if you want to have a big reception party, fine. You know, get it catered with a bunch of buffalo wings, Chick-fil-A or something. Potluck it. You can have a bunch of people. It'd be easy going, you know. Get Nathaniel. I mean, it would be so easy. And we'll get married in the hallway, and then we'll just go to your party. We just do it real fast like that. Get a few best friends in there. You don't have to spend a jillion dollars. All this big production, I'm not sure. Some of that, I mean, I'm excited about the marriage and the way it looks like, you know, the marriage between Jesus and the bride. But some of it, we're, we're trying to do the marriage supper of the lamb at every single marriage. That, that's a little, come on now. I know I'm crushing some little girls. Been thinking about the day they're going to get married, you know, for 20 years, and it can be precious. I'll tell you what makes it precious: if the Holy Spirit's there, 
And a lot of that carnival atmosphere, it's hard to get the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I mean, it's just like we got people mad at each other, glad at each other. We got, I mean, crazy. I've been, I see most people, they only get to sit there and, oh, it's such a beautiful wedding. I'm in the back. I'm going, okay, this family member hates that family member. We're having Armageddon in the back room. And then me, then here comes me and the, and the groom. <laughs> Faking like we're happy. Bride's back there having a nervous breakdown. I, I mean, literally, I, there's so many, I'm telling some people's business, but there's so many weddings. I'm back there, I'm praying for her. She's crying, you know, it's like, oh God, it's like it up. You're gonna get married and it's gonna be all over in just a minute, don't worry. It's hardly gonna be painful, you're gonna be fine. And <laughs> I get to see the background, and the reason why is because I think of this deal that we make it into, that the, the thing that's going to make your marriage beautiful is the Holy Spirit coming. That's what's going to make it beautiful. And so I, that's why I think the engagement anymore is just a time to, to pull that shindig off. And so you need a time of prior, prior to the engagement to get to know each other, to come to the grips of the reality of who each other is. And, uh, and I think that is a really important process that a lot of people, because they're young, they want to get married, and they imagine marriage to be something different than they think it is. They, they have this fantasy vision of marriage. They rush to marriage. And then they, they find themselves married and not equipped to deal with the challenges that marriage offers them. So those, I think those requisites are helpful. I think they will be helpful for you if you're considering getting married. If you're already married, there are some things in there that you can go back and really get burning in your heart. Men, get the bridal paradigm at a whole nother level. I mean, really get it and figure out what it means to relate to your wife as Christ relates to the church. Women, get the father heart of God and let that thing bring a settling to your soul and, and, and feel the Lord's covering and care over you. And, and then you'll be able to trust and look to your husband in a, in, with, a, with a different view, a different vision. So, good. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and let's just stand.